Hello, and welcome to Quip, the community writing podcast. We're excited to talk with you on behalf of Salt Lake Community College's Community Writing Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. This podcast is all about giving voice to the local writing community. We want to shed light on different genres and styles of writing, and we invite local writers and community members to come to share their pieces, their experiences, and opinions with us in regards to writing. This week we are talking about poetry and prose. Now, I'm not sure if we can provide the clearest window into the world of poetry and prose. It's a window I would wager that some of you out there may not be too anxious to look through, but Erin, what do you think of when you think of poetry? So in light of answering this question, I wanted to just make note of what Google defines poetry as. And it's defined as literature that evokes a concentrated imaginative awareness of experience or a specific emotional response through language chosen and arranged for its meaning, sound, and rhythm. And to me, I combat almost all of that. I think that Like, I don't know. I feel as if poetry can't be defined. And I really do stand by that. Sure, I think that there are certain stylistic things that fall under the poetry umbrella, if you will. But there's a very fine line between prose and poetry. A receipt from a gas station can be poetry. Right. No, that's a really good point. That's a good point. To me, poetry sort of embodies the human experience, right? It exhibits the vibrations and rhythms of existence, you know, in and of itself. You know, I think a lot of people get wrapped up with having to mm-hmm. analyze all of the different patterns and whatever messages might be hidden in age-old poetry. <laughs> But I think you're right. I mean, I think that poetry can be found, poetry and prose can be found. Right. Like if we're, if we're saying Bukowski is poetry, then there's, there's no definition. There's no no definition if Bukowski is the measuring stick. (laughs) I actually brought a poem, you know, speaking of finding poetry anywhere, I blocking out blacking out even or erasing certain parts so that the result leaves a poem. And I'd love to read it for you. Please. So here we go. Drizzled sweet, but strangely. He handed me a taste and went in for the kill. Grown domestically, smartly rolling and dormant, we agreed to experiment with it. Not quite sure how best to prepare. We pleasantly discovered a resilient, no-fail ingredient, but the result didn't taste as good as her original. Now, I was really proud of this poem. I think it's sexy as sexy as can be. My God. (laughs) You would be interested to know, (laughs) maybe interested to know, that this erasure poem was derived from an article in Cooking Light magazine titled, Mm -hmm. An Ancient Grain You Should Be Eating. (laughs) It talks about Pharaoh. So apparently, you know, deep down, Pharaoh is one sexy grain. It is. You should be eating. (laughs) Aphrodisiac. Yes. Thank you for sharing. I love that. Yeah, thank you. I I was pretty proud of it when I I cranked it out. I think myself and our listeners would be absolutely pleased if you would read a poem for us as well. Okay, I will read. This poem that I wrote um, a couple weeks ago, actually, for Open Mic. Okay, it has no title. 
like everything else that I write. I watched Donnie Darko. Every living creature dies alone, is what she said. Every living creature dies alone, yet we walk around like we need anybody. There's strength in morbidity, perhaps more strength in blinding yourself to it. That was my poem. Wow. That's beautiful. wow. <laughs> Thank I, you. I like the Donnie Darko reference quite a bit. It, it, that to me that really gives me a gives me a setting, right? It gives me some imagery that I right. think any other Donnie Darko fan would hopefully agree with. <laughs> no, who doesn't love that movie too? Who doesn't and love that it, movie? It's a it, it's a mind trip, you know? It, yeah, it's so thought provoking. And I want to I wanted to kind of model this poet or this poem off of kind of the feeling that that film evokes within me, at least like a sense of eeriness and depression. I hope that's what you got from my poem. (laughs) I feel depressed now. It's a good, it's a good sort of depression. (laughs) That's the power of poetry, everyone. So poetry and prose don't really feel like much of a, an authority on poetry and prose and whether or not there's a line that can be danced around or smudged or seen at all. But the Quip team had the opportunity and pleasure of speaking with Utah's poet laureate, Paisley Rechdahl. Here she is providing a window into life as a poet, professor, and purveyor of cultural awareness along with some insights into what makes for engaging poetry and prose. So what were some of your earliest works like? I don't remember any of my earliest works. I I produce a lot of words, so I tend to throw things out. So I don't know. I mean, they were bad. I can tell you that pretty much, you know, like obviously they were terrible. And I think I probably... You know, it took me a long time to get better and, and many years of practice and revision and studying and, and reading more and reading more and reading more and learning, you know, what was, um, what are some of the kinds of opportunities out there? Like, how do people frame their writing? How do they write about the sort of subjects I'm interested in and that sort of thing and understanding that part of writing poetry is um, being part of a conversation. I love that. Absolutely being part of the conversation. So reading, consuming, editing. How would you describe your personal poetry writing process? Well, I guess I would describe my writing process as pretty scattershot. I mean, I just sort of follow my curiosity, really. Um, I don't know where it's going to take me. I don't know what subject matters I'm necessarily going to be engaged by. I'm just uh, constantly on the lookout for something that's going to speak to me or inspire me. The only thing that's different is that I'm working right now on a series of poems that I'm actually finishing up as a book called West, a translation, which is um, a book-length poem about the transcontinental railroad. A few years ago, as part of my Poet Laureate duties, I've been commissioned to write a poem about the Transcontinental's completion for the Spike 150 celebration, the 150th anniversary of the railroad's completion. And um, I started doing research and doing more and more (laughs) and more research. And 
uh, now I've got a website that I'm going to be putting up in the next week called West, a translation where I have a Chinese poem. Each uh, Chinese character opens into a poem or video poem about the railroad's history. And then I'm turning that also into a book that also has an essay attached to it. So that was something that was kind of given to me. But like, honestly, I was so interested in the topic. I just kept researching. Very interested to learn more about this, this upcoming book and the website attached to it. Um, because you have, there are other websites out there under your careful care. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, we, t- could you tell us a little bit about your mapping projects as related to your duties as Utah's poet laureate? Well, those were not actually, well, one is actually a, a, a Utah poet laureate project and that's uh, Mapping Literary Utah. So I've been working while I'm Poet Laureate on a web archive of Utah writers past and present called Mapping Literary Utah. And I basically archive the biographical entries and any available writing and links of Utah writers uh, from around the state, all the creative writing genres. So uh, poetry, playwriting, fiction, non creative nonfiction. Uh, and it's a great sort of clearinghouse um, archive of all of the different writers through Utah's history that have created um, literature and sort of you know made this a literature rich environment. And it's been great. So far, I have over 200 writers. Um, I also have performing artists, so spoken word artists, cowboy poets. Um, We have uh, Native American storytellers. We have a variety of people, people from the spoken word scene too. And so those are in a separate section uh, where we can, you know, highlight them via video so you can actually see them performing, which I think is more exciting and important. We also have some essays on the website talking about particular subject matters that are um, of relevance to the Utah literary community. So for instance, we have a really large number of YA and children's literature authors here. So we have a spotlight essay on them. We also used to have um, a site of incarceration, Topaz, a Japanese internment camp where Japanese Americans were incarcerated during uh, World War II. So we have a spotlight essay on them. Um, and, it, you know, Topaz is a very unusual situation because um, they also house the Tanfran Arts Center. Tanfran was a um, sort of an arts collective created by these Japanese American writers and artists when they were first located um, forcefully, forcibly um, to the Tanfran racetrack um, before they were shipped to Topaz. And they basically just took Tanfran with them. They started two literary magazines and um, the, you know, there are a couple of notable visual artists that came out of that school and out of Topaz as well. So there's an essay on them. Um, there's also an essay on the LGBTQI population, which is pretty significant here in Salt Lake City. And there's been a lot of writers coming out of that community writing about the particular tensions about being LGBTQIA here in Utah, especially if they come out of an LDS background and what that's like. Um, we also um, have an essay on environmental literature too. So that's one of the biggest things that I've been working on as Poet Laureate. And the other one was mapping Salt Lake City, which is a much more you know closely located uh, examination of the relationship between literature and place. And that's something I did many years ago. But what, what inspired these mapping projects to begin with? How long have you been working on these? Well, what inspired him was actually the work of Rebecca Solnit, who wrote a wonderful book that became a series of books around the country called um, Infinite City. And she basically mapped the history of San Francisco um, via essays, as well as actual maps done by 
sort of artists and cartographers to sort of see if there's an intersection between certain movements and developments in San Francisco's history and location. And I saw that and I thought, God, that's such a great, great project. And we should have something like that here in Utah because Utah is a very rich and unusual history. And there's a lot of different communities that have been here via mining, via the railroad industry, via immigration, and via the refugee um, crises that have also sort of been sort of coming for the last century and a bit. So I thought, well, this would be just terrific. And so that's where I thought um, of that project initially. And I thought, you know, one of the things that's problematic about a book is that once it's published, you have to redo the entire issue for it to be to be updated. Whereas a website could be updated continually and it could also be sort of community generated and authored potentially allows for people to see and send in work and you know, um, be, you know, become a participant in this. So that's one of the things that really um, sparked my interest in the websites. Mapping Literary Utah is also the same idea. Like once you have an anthology, if it's published, it's hard to actually add more people, but there's something more flexible about websites. The funny thing about websites, though, is, of course, they also crystallize as new technologies take root and different kinds of, um, you know, flash or <laughs> JPEG or whatever get developed. Sometimes um, websites are actually hard. You have to update them, too. So both books and websites actually produce and require a lot of maintenance and work. But I do love the idea that there's something about a website that's that allows for a little more creative control on the reader's part and allows for a little more participation in the community's part. And how would one go about participating on <laughs> these sites? Well, first of all, you'd go and, and visit and just sort of play around. Like on Mapping Literary Utah, there's actually a big map and you can click different parts of the map and it'll take you to these different writers. You can go in there and sort of write in different sort of terms. Like I'm looking for an, an, a woman environmentalist writer who's also LGBTQIA. You can put these search terms in and, and you'll find them you know, here in Utah. So you can participate that way. But the way I'm really hoping people participate is by contacting me and telling me who needs to be on the site. The reality is that um, there's a lot of writers out there um, and some of them I know, um, many of them that I probably don't. And so I'm always sort of crowdsourcing, crowd surfing um, information that what people have. The problem for um, the site, of course, is that it is an archive. So it requires that the people have at least one published book not self-published, unfortunately, but published by an independent collective university or trade press. We're pretty open about the type of publisher, but we do draw the line at self-publication. Um, so if you know someone that fits that bill, and as long and as long as they've written at least one book of creative literature, something we would consider imaginative literature, they can be on the site. We've had a couple of very angry historians <laughs> approach the site. Like, why are why am I not in there? And it's you know it's too bad. It really is too bad because of course I would love to have say, on Brody on the site, but she never wrote creative writing. She wrote you know biographies. She wrote histories, and we do. Uh, make a distinction because we do want to focus on the literary arts first. So that's that's the only sort of cut off there. There's a whole essay on the site that people can read if they're interested to sort of see like why we are archiving the people we are archiving and um, why we're drawing certain distinctions and boundaries. Have any of your own you know personal experiences and relationships informed your writing? And if so, how? Well, I think every writer is personally informed 
by relationships, real life events, uh, they transform them in some way or another. So I don't think I'm unusual in that. But in, in my case, and I'll just go back to the Project West translation that I'm working on, you know, I'm half Chinese. I don't know if a lot of people would see that looking at me immediately, but it was really important for me when I was given this commission to take seriously the idea of writing a poetic history from a very different you know, viewpoint, which is um, the laborers, the Chinese workers viewpoint, ideally. Uh, though I do think about other railroad workers and other communities affected by the railroad because a lot of these communities were treated basically the same, very poorly. And so there's a lot of ways in which you could see um, certain cross-racial, cross-community struggles uh, intersecting and then also pulling apart at very, very crucial junctures. So I think being um, half Chinese was really important, I think, in the construction, the way I thought even about writing this poem. The poem is called a translation because I take an Angel Island poem there's a poem carved in the detainment center in Angel Island, where it was basically Ellis Island of the West, where Chinese immigrants were housed or detained during the Chinese Exclusion Act um, to see if they would be allowed entry into the United States or, or sent back. And some of these detainees were held up to 24 months, and some of them commuted, committed suicide you know, when they discovered that they would be sent back. Anyway, um, the poem that I take is an elegy for a detainee that committed suicide. So the poem opens with a Chinese poem. And in the performance I do, it's read by a Cantonese male speaker. So the very first entry into this poem about the transcontinental is one that most people won't literally be able to understand. And then I take each character, as I said, and I translate it in via the story of a particular community or vo voice from the 19th century. And one of those voices is by a woman writer named Xuxin Far. And she, she created that name. She herself was biracial. She was a woman who was living in the 19th century. Um, she lived, she came from Seattle. She was a journalist. And she wrote a, a wonderful and an eerily familiar essay for me called Leaves from the no Mental Portfolio of a Eurasian. And she writes about the sort of racism and sexism she experienced as a, a mixed race woman. Um, traveling around the world at that time. And, you know, for me, reading that essay, so many of those things that happened in her life have happened in mine. I mean, you could just, it's like an overlay. So I write from her perspective in one poem too. And that was something that, you know, I remember feeling as an electric jolt when I was reading, you know, her writing. And she also took the transcontinental. She wrote about the railroad too. And I just thought that that was a really electric, electric moment for me to see this connection between us across time, um, sharing so many of the same identity issues, anxieties, same artistic interests, um, and also, also being so influenced by the same technology, weirdly. Very fascinating. We've, you find these, these commonalities and identity and time and place, which leads me to my next question. Do you believe that poetry can be used as a force for positive social change? And if so, how? You know, people ask a lot whether poetry can be a force for, for positive social change. And let me pose another question. Can poetry be a force for social evil? I think 
there's a risk in wanting poetry to do good because if it does good, it can do evil as well. If a poem could stop a war, a poem could start a war. And I don't think anyone wants that, right? Like I think, I think what happens is that poetry can inspire people to make any kind of change that they want. Uh, and if you are a bad reader of poetry, <laughs> then, then you will probably go in a direction that the poem and the writer of that poem did not intend for you to, to take. But I, I myself don't, it's a strange thing to say, especially maybe as a professional poet and as a poet laureate, I don't want poetry to be a change for good. I want people to be a change for good. I want poetry to give voice to how you will articulate that good. But I certainly don't want poetry to be the thing that initiates these kinds of movements because like I said, that can go in any direction. And, and poetry should not have that kind of power. No writing should, because that's, that's when we start walking into propaganda. I think people, people are the ones that create and listen to and respond to language. Poems can't activate anything without a reader's consent. And that's the important thing about both the activity of reading, but also the activity of writing. Along those lines of providing that opportunity for voice. How do you go about presenting complex narratives with poetry? Well, you know, <laughs> when I want to present complex narratives in poetry, I think one of the first things I have to do with all students um, and readers in general is sort of give a kind of context. Like, how do you how are you going to approach this poem? You know, I think a lot of people come to a poem and they start to panic. Like if I don't get it instantly, I'm an idiot. But poems are one of the few forms of writing that really don't want you to get it instantly. I mean, some poems do. I mean, some poems are, are designed to be easily and quickly encapsulated by a reader. And that's always pleasant and wonderful. But the vast majority of poems I think are places of you know, meditation more than anything else. They're not places of instantaneous response. And so most of that is about trying to get people to calm down when they get a poem and sort of relax and sort of say, okay, well, what's the, in my first read, what am I getting from the poem? And, and then, okay, let's isolate a few words, a few images, like why are we feeling this way? Why are we seeing this? And, and what are some of the relationships this word has to say maybe other texts or how is it that the connotation and denotation of these words can take us in different directions? And then, you know, that allows students to start saying, okay, well now I have another way of approaching the poem. Like what in fact, if, it, if it's going this way, there's another set of images and, and words that come out of the poem that now I'm paying attention to. One thing I also like to do is I give my students um, a poem that's maybe quite famous, but maybe they haven't seen it before. And I give them the whole poem, except for a few words taken out. And I say, what do you think the words should be here? Like you fill in the words, like a Mad Lib. And then the students will fill in the words that they want based on how they're reading the poem, how they're hearing the music of the poem at that time. Then I show them the final version that the poet, you know, published. And I say, what are the differences in your word choice versus their word choice? And students usually have a really interesting conversation about that. Sometimes they come up with better words than the poet chose. Very rarely, I have to say. 
But then, you know, oftentimes when they see like why their word wasn't as good, not only does it give them a greater appreciation for the work that the poet did, but it also illuminates something about that poem. They're like, if, if you choose this word versus that word, you actually have a very different set of emotional effects. It, it might mean something almost totally different to a reader. And that's the thing about a poem. There's no ideally perfect poem. It's all a series of choices that people make. And those choices have really strong effects on us as readers. So the reading experience is really where those complex narratives are yeah. arrived, right? We have to yeah. be very self-reflexive with. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Now, you've also written and published, I mean, a, a great deal of nonfiction <laughs> works and often combine multiple genres and mediums into one complete project, as we've discussed between printing books and, and publishing a website. For example, um, part of the description of Intimate, you know, a family American photo album on your website includes a hybrid memoir and quote-unquote photo album that blends personal essay, historical documentary, and poetry to examine the tense relationship between self, society, and familial legacy in contemporary America. How does working across multiple mediums better convey any given message you're attempting to produce? Yeah, the thing about working across multi multiple genres and multiple media is that you start to realize what each one can contain, what kind of information each one can present and contain. Um, when I was working on Intimate, which has poetry, fiction, nonfiction, cultural studies, as well as photography, we, it, it taught me something about reading and writing. Um, when, when we look at a photograph, we read that information in a particular way. A photograph can only present a certain amount of information, though, of course, right? Text, text can give greater sense of time, characterization, interiority, all these sorts of things. So, of course, it's great to have text. But even you know, poems don't carry the same information that a piece of fiction might or a piece of creative nonfiction. A poem that contains the same information as creative nonfiction might read as very didactic. Um, and at the same time, then if you have a piece of fiction, sometimes you're missing some of the lyricism or you're missing some of the information that nonfiction can give you. So for me, working in those genres was allowing myself to inhabit different types of information and share different types of information about um, what it means to read a photograph. And since Intimate is also a study of the portrait uh, photographer, um, Edward Sheriff Curtis, who took all of these photographic images of American Indians west of the Mississippi, you know, it was a way to sort of explore how is it that we represent people of color? How is it that we represent specifically American Indians, but then also mixed race people? Because in his photographs, he refused to um, photographically represent anyone who was mixed race because he wanted this very particular idea of quote unquote Indianness. And so I thought, well, wow, that's a really, really stark, you know, conversation that he's presenting visually around race um, and who gets to be American and who doesn't get to be American, who gets to be part of the record and who doesn't get to be part of the record. So that's what that book is about. It's about sort of the, the, the blindness of a kind of white male modernity. When it comes to working across uh, websites versus books, we don't read the same online as we do in a book. Um, it's sometimes visually overwhelming to, to read 
a very long piece of prose. You know, I don't, I don't like to do it on, on websites. So it actually changes everything. Like how I write for a website, you know, now I'm like, okay, this has to be short. This has to be pithy. <laughs> it has to not have really, really a complex or dense syntax, you know? And so that's, that was something that really surprised me. Um, and, you know, so simultaneously when you're making video essays, how do you, um, make it so that the visual image speaks to and brings out maybe a new meaning um, in the text itself. How do you keep a reader's interest or a visual, a visual, you know, audience member's interest engaged? So that's these are just, I guess, I guess really, I'm just fascinated by the process of reading in general. Right, and every one of these places will have different, different. Uh tactics, I guess, to, like exactly. you said, keep your, keep your yeah. audience engaged, right? Keep their attention. I think that uh, technology definitely poses some uh, problematic implications for uh, how well we maintain our attention with the world. Yeah, it's um, true. I mean, I just to interrupt here. I mean, most of my friends who are Victorian, um, Victorianists who, you know, teach those long, you know, novels, they said that it's really hard for students to get through them now. Um, our syntax has changed because of the internet. I mean, we all write very clipped, very short sentences now. Um, and our attention for those longer, more complex novels and sentences has really diminished. And I think, you know, we'll probably get a very different style of writing, you know, in the next century because of this. And you know, it's not like it's going to be terrible literature, but it is, I do think we've lost something. I really do think we've lost something there. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we're losing a bit of richness mm -hmm. in our literature. So along that vein, where, where would you draw the line between poetry and prose, literature? Mm. Where do you see those divides? You know, it's funny. People ask a lot, like, in so many different contexts, and poets ask it too, you know, what is the difference between poetry and prose? And it's a little bit like pornography, <laughs> you know, you know it when you see it. At the same time, I have to admit, I'm probably not good about this because I don't, I don't personally care that much about those genres, genre distinctions, that, you know, that, as some critics might. Um, and I think it's largely to do with, you know, the fact that I do write in multiple genres and I, I see them as moving together. You know, my last book of poetry, Nightingale, a lot of people said, well, this is very prose-like. And what they actually meant to say was this is very narrative. But I find that really interesting because, you know, I'm retelling Ovid's Metamorphoses in, um, in Nightingale. So each poem is, is the retelling of a story. So I studied short stories and I studied Ovid very closely to figure out how he, he handled pacing and character and time and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, what that meant was I created very narrative poetry. But people were like, oh, that's prose. And it's like, no, I mean, that's the funny thing. You know, I've read pieces of prose that read like poetry. And I've read pieces of poetry that have such narrative qualities to it. And you think, oh, well, I can't help but think of novels or short stories. You know, I think of prose. So for me, I think the most interesting writing is actually one that, that pushes us towards the boundaries of genre. You know, like the poem that explodes into nonfiction or um, the book that contains more than one genre, one way of thinking about it um, itself. You know, the poems that just do what poems do in a very conventional sense, 
those can be delightful and interesting, but they don't necessarily push me to re-examine like how how does it function? Like what why I I I know when I think about the history of literature, I think most of literature has always been something that defies a kind of easy categorization. Like even Frankenstein, you look at that and you think, well, it's a novel, but there's bits and pieces of poetry in there. There's letters upon letters inside of journals, inside of you know newspaper accounts and stuff like that. It's actually collage text. And you know, Tristram Shandy, which is just all over the place, and and Ovid's Metamorphoses, you know, like it's just story that opens into story, opens into story. And I think it's only because they're just dead old texts that we think, oh, well, these are genre, you know, defining categories, but they didn't know what they were doing either. <laughs> so, so, I mean, that's the reality, like the really interesting texts kind of just explode or change genre in some, some basic way. And in fact, I kind of know when I'm in the presence of not great literature because it behaves exactly according to how that genre is supposed to behave. So do you then effective, whatever it may be, poetry, prose, effective writing isn't confined to genre? Yeah, yeah, not necessarily so, yeah. I mean, that's the thing I was just thinking. I mean, I read a lot of romance novels. And I read a lot of horror novels too. Um, and, you know, even within those genres, there are better and worse versions of it, right? Um, but the worst versions of, you know, romance novels, I mean, you know, by page 75, exactly you know like which sexual acts even will have been just depicted like it's to that point like you you know exactly what's going to happen in, in horror novels you know exactly you know where to find or where to imagine the scary thing and and if you can do that there's a there's a certain satisfaction with that right like it's sort of it's sort of like binge watching during the pandemic your favorite comedies you've watched a thousand times before right like you just you just want to tune out you just want to be entertained but not like electrified or, or, or threatened or, you know, freaked out in any way. You want something that soothes you. So I get why genre is, is, is helpful that way. But like, I think real literature pushes past those things. So then you're like, wait, uh, wait, suddenly in this romance novel, like it's between two women, <laughs> you know, like, wait, no. And it's not written for men. Like it's not that kind of pornography. It's like, you know, it, it goes in a different way. And, um, and so there's all sorts of surprises um, that I think we can do. And I think that that's, that's the exciting thing about writing, which is that you can know these conventions, you can break these conventions, you can play with these conventions, you can marry conventions together, you know? Um, so yeah, to a certain extent, you're right. I mean, I think literature is kind of border defining, or border challenging, I should say. You've <laughs> given us so much of your wisdom and your insight and we can't, we couldn't be more grateful. Um, but yes, we would love to hear you read one of your pieces if you happen to have one prepared. I'll read a poem that is, is a, this is the only thing that's even close to something we've been talking about because none of these poems sounds particularly genre defining or defying on its own terms. But um, it's the only thing I could find very quickly online. So it's called Flowers from a New Love After the Divorce. And if you know anything about poetry, um, you might know about this form called the Sistina, which is six stanzas of six lines and a sort of interlocking 
repetition of six particular words at the end of each line, one per line. And there's a whole formula for how you have to do the repetition and things like that. But I have, I, I've written a couple of Sistinas, never like them, but this one is called, I'm calling it a Faustina because it's, it speaks to the Sistina, but sort of abandons it. So you're gonna hear a high amount of repetition, but it violates the Sistina form. Flowers from a new love after the divorce. Cut back the stems an inch to keep in bloom. So instructs the florist's note enclosed inside the flowers. Who knew what was cut could heal again, the green wounds close, stitching themselves together. It doesn't matter. The flowers, red and white, will bloom a while, then wither. You sit in an unlit room and watch the vase throw crystal shadows through the dark. The flowers' colors are so lovely, they're painful. In a week, you'll have to throw them out. It's only hope that makes you take out scissors, separate each bloom and cut where you last measured. Did you know Venus would said to turn into a virgin each time she bathed? She did it as a mark of love. She did it so as to please her lovers. Perhaps overwhelmed by pain, she eventually stopped bathing altogether. It doesn't matter. It's a pleasure to feel the green nubs stripped, watch the stems refresh under your blade. They're here because they're beautiful. They glow inside your crystal vase. And yet the flowers by themselves are nothing, only a refraction of color that in a week or two will be thrown out. Day by day, the water lowers, the red and white heads droop, blacken at the stems. It doesn't matter. Even cut stems heal. But what is the point of pain if it heals? Some things should last forever, instructs the florist note. Pleasure, says one god. Shame, says another. Venus heads, they call these flowers. In a week or two, you'll lose the note, have to call the florist up. With sympathy, you'll think he says, perhaps with love. It doesn't matter. You've stopped bathing. Alone, you sit before the crystal vase refracting you in pieces through the dark. You watch the pale skin bloom inside it, wither. You petal inch by inch. You turn red and white together. Beautiful. Thank you. And this is a poem that you have, you created that defies genre. Well, I like it. Yeah. Faustina. It's a Faustina. Yeah, it just, yeah, it evades more than defies, I would say in that case, but yes. Well, I love it. You, you've you created a, a, a genre-bending <laughs> poem, and that's wonderful. You created your own term. So, I mean, new, new horizons as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, there you go. That's it. Well, Paisley, thank you so much for joining us today. We understand that your time is ultimately valuable and precious. And the fact that you were willing to share it with us today is an absolute honor. I was super happy to talk to you guys and um, enjoyed the conversation very much. And I hope everyone out there goes out to Mapping Literary Utah and takes a look at that site and uses it, shares it, and ideally lets me know who I'm missing. And if you know of any writers, heckle them also to contact me. <laughs> well, I'm glad to have your endorsement to heckle. Yes. For I will do my best to follow.
Yep, it's about that time here, folks. Don't forget to check out Paisley Rectal's Mapping Literary Utah project at mappingliteraryutah.org, as well as Mapping Salt Lake City at mappingslc.org. Quip is brought to you by the Community Writing Center. Visit us at slcc.edu slash cwc or come hang out with us at 210 East, 400 South, just steps away from the Salt Lake City Downtown Library. We are in suite number eight. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram if that's more your preferred method. Thanks go out to our producer and managing editor, Tara Hogan. Special thanks to our audio and production manager, Aaron Esparza. Thanks for listening. Until next time. That's good.